It's hard not to see that in his evil, in his things that he had done wrong, he lost two sons, and then God gave him back two sons, something he didn't deserve. And yet, God is faithful. See, Jesus, he's called the Lion of Judah. Could have chose all those other names, all those other 11 boys. You could have chose Joseph, who right now is in Egypt, making sure the world doesn't starve to death. But he chose Judah. This messed up person. And from Judah, kings came. God's promise is good. His providence is good. But remember, when we lose sight of the end of our stories, we get lost in the middle. And the result is pain. Merry Christmas, everybody. And welcome to the Life Church Canton podcast. My name is Sam. I'm the host for the show. Thanks for listening. I apologize that this episode is coming out a little later in the week. I was off for a few days early this week, um, so I'm just getting to it now. My apologies. Um, We are right in the middle of our series called In Wonder. And in this series, we're kind of looking at the genealogy of Jesus, um, the people that allowed him to be born and allowed the promise of God's um, Savior to come true. Um, And there's a lot of unlikely people in that that lineage of Jesus. Um, This isn't what I would consider to be a typical um, Christmas series message, um, but I think it's uh, a a really intriguing story that maybe a lot of us haven't heard um, in a while, at least. Uh, It's about Judah, um, and Nathan's going to talk to you about it now. Enjoy. Welcome, everybody, online and in the room. I hope that you're feeling a little bit closer to Christmas, this moment where we're getting into the feel of it. Uh, As we step into this season, this special season where there's nothing like it, and this moment where we get to experience not just nostalgia, not just good feelings, but wonder, wonder of the Christmas season. And one of the greatest movements of God ever accomplished, we celebrate on Christmas, that Jesus Christ came, that he sent his son to earth. And when God moves, our emotions move with him. And if this is one of the greatest movements God ever made, that our emotions should continue to be moved by it. So we're hoping, whether it's your first time here or you've been here a lot, whether you've celebrated one Christmas or hundreds and hundreds of Christmases, which would be hard to do because you'd have to be hundreds and hundreds of years old, I hope that you get to capture a new sense of wonder. This series is about recapturing the wonder of the birth of Jesus Christ. And we're on this improbable journey to recapturing the wonder of God with us, Emmanuel. And we're doing that through a family tree. So we decided to look at Jesus' genealogy, all of his parents and grandparents and great-great-grandparents, all the way up to see the different kind of people there. And we're finding that there are some very improbable people, people who really shouldn't be there, like people you would not claim like as your ancestor, someone you don't want to be there, and yet they are. That the most beautiful thing God ever did was done through really ugly people. It's kind of a paradox that God would choose to move in this way. Last week, Daniel had a great sermon. He talked about Rehoboam, who was a king, and he was a bad dude, not like bad in a good way, like he was just bad and dumb and stupid and a jerk, and he did some terrible things, and because he listened to bad counselors, he ended up causing death and suffering and a split of God's kingdom. Not a great way to go, and yet, and yet we celebrate that Rehoboam is part of Jesus's 
ancestors, that he's one of his great-great-grandparents. Why? Why? Because we get to see that Jesus is someone who is the wonderful counselor, and he does things that are incredible for us. But not only that, he uses broken people. We see ourselves in this story. And today we're going to talk about some great-grandparents of Jesus, some other group of people, stellar individuals, actually. Um, They're kind of messed up as well. Have you ever been, um, like, found out something about your family you didn't know before, like your grandparents or even your parents, something that maybe isn't the greatest, like you're shocked by it, like Grandma Shirley, you found out, used to be a stripper, right? Like, the next family reunion's a bit awkward, like, you found out everybody else knew, but you didn't know, and now you don't know how to look at Grandma Shirley the same, and you're like, oh, this is weird. Or, Or maybe there's some hidden skeletons or affairs or messed up moments, things that you don't want to talk about, or Uncle Steve actually could have at one point been dad. Like, this is, it's not great. Like, it's messed up. Or worst thing that you could possibly find out, great-grandpa Frank played football for the Ohio State Buckeyes at one point, right? Just a traitor to the family. Like, (laughs) oh, come on, come on. I had to say something, all right? (laughs) But imagine that. Imagine, like, things are a bit weird. And we see this in, and we don't like to talk about it. We don't like to talk about it. We see this in pop culture. Star Wars, the last one of the Skywalker saga, comes out on Friday, and I'm really excited. But if you go back to the originals and you watch them again, which I did, I watched all nine movies, or all eight movies, whatever it is, all the way up to it to get ready, I noticed something that I hadn't noticed before that I'm kind of like, oh, that's weird. See, in the third movie, we find out that Luke and Leia are, what, brother and sister. That's great. But in the second movie, they totally kiss, like, a lot. Like, like what, what is up with that? Like, that's messed up. Anyone else, like, go, oh, that's kind of weird? No? You guys all like that? Okay. Like, <laughs> it's weird. Like, you think if they're going to go back when they did the remaster and change some things, like, they changed that Han Solo shot first. He shot first. He really did shoot first, right? We changed that. But we just left the slightly incestuous thing there, right? Like, that would have been one to get rid of. Like, this is in our culture today. We have these moments, whether it's a Game of Thrones where we found out the Khaleesi is actually Jon Snow's aunt, spoiler alert, but it's been out for a while. Like, it's just weird, shudder, ugh, messy. Well, this next story, this next parents, it's just like a Skywalker or Game of Thrones. It's so messed up, it's hard to believe it's even in the Bible. Like, why? Do we need to see this? Warning, I'll let you know, but when you talk about a family tree, there's a lot of begotting going on, and so there's a little bit of sexually explicit stuff here. I will let you know when I'm about to read the verse, so if you're you know, young in the audience and you don't want to hear it, you can earmuff them. I'll let you know, but this is real life. The Bible is kind of saucy at times. It's, it's real. Uh, it, it's not rated G. Life isn't rated G. It's not even rated PG, PG PG-13. This is rated R because our lives often, especially parts we don't like to talk about, are rated R. There's some messed up stuff. And though it seems improbable, God wants to use us and wants to use people like this to do the most incredible things you can possibly imagine. And so we're going to jump into this story in Genesis and chapter 38. Genesis is the story about how there was a fall and everything went bad. But God wanted to redeem the world and he started it through this guy named Abraham. And all of Abraham's descendants over hundreds and thousands of years, they were told that the redemption of the world would come through them. And so we're running into Judah and Judah in 
uh, chapter 38. He's the first character we meet. He's one of 12 brothers who would eventually be the tribes of Judah. He's a big deal. A lot hangs on this man. He is a patriarch in the fullest sense of the word. People know who Judah was. And so we run into him in verse 1, Genesis 38, 1 and 2. Uh, we're going to talk about the entire story of the chapter 38, but I won't be able to read every verse. You can follow along, but I'll jump in at points and then summarize the others. Verse 1, at that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. There, Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and made love to her. Okay, normal, this is life, like this is how this works, except it was a mistake. It was a giant, huge mistake. God had said to stay within the faith. God had said to stay within this group of people. Something is coming through you that's going to change the world, but you need to stay together. It wasn't a race thing. It was a religious thing. The Israelites were set apart to love God and be different than everyone else because something that was greater than anything else was going to come through them, and yet... Judah chooses something else. Hira, the second guy we're going to talk about, his buddy drew him away from his family to another area, the Canaanites. And what we'll find out is those Canaanites had nothing to do with God. They were freaky and crazy and doing all kinds of stuff. Not only that, Judah decides to marry one of these individuals. The tribes, his name was more important than you can imagine. It was through these tribes, these 12 brothers, that the promise of God to Abraham would come to be, that all the pain and suffering and death and evil that began in the garden would eventually be redeemed through them, through a Messiah. Now, the word Messiah is kind of overused in our culture, but a Messiah is someone who has like benevolence and power and might and even maybe even like governmental power who comes and restores, someone who just comes and makes everything right, who just shows up and does it. Now, imagine if you found out that in your family, God said a Messiah would come from your family. Would that change the way that you look at your family? Of course it would, but Judah forgot this. And he endangered his line by bringing a Canaanite into the family. He forgot what God was trying to do through his family. And this is the lesson you need to see played out through the rest of this. When we lose sight of the end of our stories, the result is pain. When we lose sight of what's ahead of us, where we're going, if we don't begin with the end in mind, to use a term that you might know, then we cause pain. It's not just like, oh, not great. It's pain. And you'll see this over and over again. This is a warning for today, but I want you to see it also as a source of strength. That if, remember, if we remember the point of our lives is to serve God, and then we choose to follow Jesus every day and participate in what he is doing, no matter what pain comes, no matter what suffering, no matter what circumstances, we will persevere. But if we miss our point, we will cause pain to ourselves and to those around us. Judah's responsibility was to look forward to the birth of the Savior through him and his. He was supposed to look forward to Christmas. And though he didn't know what Christmas would look like, we do. We get to see what he was giving up for something else. So the story continues. Life goes on. They got married and they had three sons. I don't know how many daughters. They don't list the daughters, but they had three sons. That's a good thing. Carrying on the name, carrying on 
the life and goes and gets a wife for Ur, his oldest, um, and he actually does the right thing, and he goes back to the tribe, and he gets Tamar. This is the third character in our story, and Tamar is, you know, Jewish, and so he brings that back in. That's, that's a hugely positive thing. Because of that, now he has reestablished the line. So things are going well, okay? So maybe this is where the story ends, but it doesn't. In verse 7, Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight. So the Lord put him to death. Wow. That's crazy. We don't know anything more than that. We have to kind of guess what sin would cause God, you know, to put him to death. It's kind of hard. Maybe he liked pineapple on his pizza, and that was... (laughs) I actually like pineapple on my pizza. (laughs) Maybe he sent spam Facebook messages to everybody. You know what I mean? I, I don't know what his sin was. It wasn't that. It was probably something way worse. We don't know. We're not told. That's not important to the story, but there was a consequence for his sins. And things get a little bit weird after that. So Tamar and Ur, they're married. Ur's dead. No kids. Next verse. Then Judah said to Onan, which is his second son, sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. Hold up. What the what? Like, what? can you imagine this happening to you? Like, if you're like, oh, your brother's wife, you know, you got to go, you know, do that thing. No, that's crazy. What's happening? Well, some history here. The name of the family was so important that it must be preserved, not only as a custom in the area, but also because of what God had going. The custom was to provide a child that the late hus- husband, who obviously could not provide an heir at this point, that it would be in his name to preserve this order. This firstborn inheritance that would have been Ur's needs to go to Ur's, you know, children moving forward. It must go to his wife Tamar so that the union would result in an offspring. And on top of that, they had something they were looking forward to at the very end, the Messiah coming. But not only that, women in this society had absolutely no rights whatsoever. And so Tamar now has you know, you know, not a virgin anymore, doesn't have a husband or an heir, and she has no place in society. She would be a widow who would have no money, no place, no power, no influence whatsoever. She's got the raw end of the stick here. So what this is supposed to do is provide her with an heir so that she can live in her place in the family, so that when she's old and gray, that she is surrounded by people who take care of her. It's a kindness as well. That's why this custom exists, and that's why he says, hey, you've got to go into this, do this, Onan, accomplish this. Judah, again, actually does the right thing, but it goes off the rails. This would be a good time if you have little ears. Muff them for just a moment, and, uh, and we'll move forward. Here's what happens. Verse 9, but Onan knew that the child would not be his. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. That's exactly what it sounds like. And this is something that is so incredibly evil. I'm going to explain what's going on here, the nuances of what's happening. Onan is keeping his seed away from Tamar. This means he will get the inheritance because if there cannot be an heir to continue in Ur's name, that means that he, as the secondborn, will get the double portion, the inheritance, the family power. He's going to get this. And so what he is trying to do is steal the inheritance from the rightful heir. 
He's also disrespecting his brother's memory in a way he's basically saying, I wish you never existed. Your name will cease. Nothing will continue beyond you. Name was more important than anything else. It's like spitting on his grave. And then it gets worse. It means he's also stealing power and influence from Tamar so that Tamar has nothing and will have nothing putting her into a a destitute place, using his power to do this. But most of all, imagine how Tamar feels. It's bad enough that as a woman who has been widowed in order to follow custom and to ever have a chance of having children in a future, must have sex with her brother-in-law. That's difficult enough. That's hard enough. That is just so beyond what we can understand. But Onan is, instead of providing for her, just using her, using her sexually. And it's hard to see this as anything but rape. Taking pleasure from her without providing a promise, without providing an opportunity for her to have a future, withholding from her, and it is evil. And at this point, you're asking yourself, how can this story ever turn out good? It's improbable. It's improbable that this goes anywhere, and it gets worse. 10, what he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. And now two men who she has slept with are now dead, and Judah is without two sons, and the name has not continued, and Judah gets afraid. He gets fearful. He starts to think, I only have one child left. What is going on? I'm afraid. And so what he chooses to do is he makes her a widow, says, hey, just live as a widow. Go back to your father's house. Go back to sh- in shame. Go back. And when Shayla, my youngest, is old enough, then you will, be, uh, uh, you will be his wife. So this is bad enough. But Shayla grows up and is not given to Tamar as a husband. Somewhere along the line, Judah, who is afraid and probably never thought he would actually do this, decides to withhold from Tamar. And instead of looking at his children as being evil, he chooses to blame her and say, I'm not going to do this again. And I can understand Judah in this moment. And I've never been in a situation like that. And I hope I never will be because that's just weird. But like, I understand him. I understand that fear. If you have children, do you understand that fear? That fear of like, I don't want them to experience any pain, not just like running into a counter, but like going to school and like getting his feelings hurt by people and you just want to protect them. You know what I'm talking about? You want to keep them from any pain. You think, often we think our role in this world is to protect our children from ever experiencing anything difficult ever, unless they choose it, right? Like just just, oh, I don't want them to feel pain. I get that. That's part of being a father, but I'm losing sight of the end because my purpose is not to provide a pain-free existence for my children, but to provide a life of purpose. And when I forget that God wants to use my children to do something in this world and bring about redemption as part of the kingdom of God, when I lose sight of that, I think it's about them not suffering. And I understand, Judah. I understand that pain. But I have to keep the end in mind and realize there can be no greater joy for me as a Christian, for me as a father, than to see my children spread joy, happiness, love, and purpose beyond themselves. Not so that they just don't have any pain. That 
has to be the way, I think, and Judah has allowed fear to keep him from what he said he was going to do to Tamar and to keep him from his purpose and what God has for him. And it does the same to us. So what happens next? Tamar is used, abused, and abandoned. And it keeps getting worse. Judah's wife dies. And now he doesn't have a wife. He doesn't have his two sons. He only has one son left. And he's full of grief. And he grieves. And he grieves. And he grieves. And then Hira, forgot about him, he comes back. He has an idea. Verse 12. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah to the men who were shearing his sheep. And his friend Hira, the Adulamite, went with him. Hira is back. He's like, I got you, fam. You're feeling bad. Let's make this happen. I know what you need to do. Let's go shear some sheep. Because that's weird. What's that got to do with anything? Uh, okay, it, this isn't a work thing. This is actually a festival. What's going on right here is he's saying, hey, let's go party. Let's go party. You're, you're, you're upset. Let's just go party. You know, the Canaanites, they know how to party. When we shear our sheep, we really shear our sheep. But actually what that is, is, is there is a huge sex-filled raver party that while they were doing this work, they would party and they would, they would have sex with temple prostitutes. Like that's what they would do. And it was supposed to increase fertility and all kinds of stuff, but it is a big deal, and it was nuts. So if your teenager ever says, what are you, hey, what are you doing? Oh, yeah, I'm going to a, a sheep shearing. That's where I'm going, and he's not or she's not in 4-H. You say, heck no, you're not going to a sheep shearing. Something wrong with those sheep. That's not sheep shearing. That's some seed sowing. Like, I was like, oh, heck no. Heck to the no, no, no. You're not going there. But Judah goes with Hira. He loses sight. And he moves on. Judah's blatant disrespect for the name of Israel, for the name of his father, for the promise God had for him. Think about this. He's going to go and engage in this. And potentially, he's going to have a child with these women he'll never even see. And this child will grow up never knowing him. And this child that could have been the line of Jesus will never know the promise. Not much of the fact like what he's doing is just dead wrong. It wasn't right. God wasn't cool with that then. He's not cool with that now. But this is what Judah does. And Tamar hears about it. And she hatches a plan. It's bold. And she dresses up like a prostitute with a veil. And before Judah even gets to Timnah, on his way to Timnah, she's waiting at the place in the city where the prostitutes would normally wait. And Judah can't even wait to get to Timnah to do his thing and goes up to her and propositions her. But Tamar is also incredibly crafty, and Tamar knows that he doesn't have anything to pay her with because he's already sent his sheep ahead. See, he's not doing any work. He's just there to party. And so when he says, okay, I want to have sex with you, she's like, how are you going to pay me? And he's like, oh, when I get to Timnah, I'll send you one of my goats. And she's like, uh-uh, I need something now. But Tamar has had a plan. See, she's there to get two things. One, she's there to get from Judah what Onan couldn't provide, a seed, if you know what I mean. Second, she's there to get some protection because what will happen to her if she's found out, if she found out that she's pregnant, is she will be killed. Second, so this to get the protection, and this is how she does it in verse 18. He said, okay, what pledge should I give you? Well, she says, your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her, slept with her. She became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes. Again, 
Judah gives her something incredibly important. What those things are is basically like giving your cell phone unlocked. It's like giving your car, your car keys, your house keys, your wallet with the credit card and all the pins to everything. It's like giving over all of your power and authority. Judah is so obsessed with what he's trying to do. He's willing to give everything away to this person he thinks he doesn't even know because he's so messed up. I'm going to be honest, young men and women, or maybe older, maybe if you're single again, you find yourself in that place. For the sake of infatuation and sexual desire and what seems like the beginning of love, go give everything away. You'll give everything away for these semblances of something. And I want to remind you of something, something that I'm, I'm learning as I'm married and as I'm learning as I love, the Bible calls it, and he's so right, love is first what? Love is patient. Love is kind. And I want you to ask that question about what you're experiencing. Is this patient? Is this kind? Today, I'm, I'm celebrating 12 years of marriage. And uh, yeah, it's, it's good. I... I, I can't wait to make it to like 60, right? But after that, I just want to die because I'll probably be so old. But like, no, 60 years of marriage, not 60 years old. Gosh, calm down, everybody. <laughs> Everyone's like, oh, come on, I'm 60. No, that's not what I meant. Anyways, that's totally, forget all that. Pretend it never existed. This isn't even going Facebook Live. Oh, it is. Everyone heard it. Okay. But one thing I'm learning is love is patient. And when you find that, it's good. That patience overcomes. And so young men, young women, or, or, men who, or women who find themselves now looking again, be patient. Be patient because it's good. Judah, he can't even get there. He can't even get close. Judah sends a goat back to get his signet and staff, but Tamar is not there. See, she already got what she wanted. See, so many people I talk to nowadays are finding themselves broken after a relationship because they found themselves wanting more after they already gave almost everything away. And I don't want you to feel that place because you are worth a commitment. You are worth more than that. You are valuable. I don't care what your past is. You have value don't sell it for something quick, even though it seems so intense right now. But Tamar got what she wanted and moved on, and sometimes people get what they want and they move on. You're worth more than that. But where we find ourselves, Tamar has just had sex with her father-in-law to entrap him into doing what he said he would do for her, but also doing what he said he would do for God. This is messed up. This is improbable that it turns out well. But God uses it for his plan. Every character in the story has chosen a poor path. Tamar did what she thought she had to, but this is descriptive, not prescriptive. What she did is not good in the eyes of God, but she did what she thought she had to do. This story is not about what you should do in a situation like this. Don't take that away. This is a story about how God redeems jacked up situations, about how God shows up knowing that he has a promise for all of us and he's going to show up in a way despite us. And Judah has screwed up in so many ways at this point. His redemption, though, is coming. But 
by no effort of his own, only because of God's goodness. Verse 24, three months after this, about three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. And Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. This is the custom. Different standards for men and women back then. Men openly had sex with prostitutes and even sent their servants to pay them. That's how well known it was. But if one of theirs, one of theirs gets pregnant, they were within their rights and their duty often to kill her. And Tamar knew this was the risk she was going to take. And so she rolls the dice, verse 25. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Boom. Judah shook. Can you imagine the absolute embarrassment, shock, awe, confusion that would have hit him? That Two of his sons have been with this woman, and now he had been too, and now there's a child. Can you imagine? I can't. This is messed up. And in this moment, Judah has a choice because Tamar is still the weaker. He realized that there was craftiness there, and he could choose in this moment to be evil like Onan, to forget his commitment to God and promise to her and he could choose to kill her and deny it ever happened. You think it didn't happen? It happened all the time. But instead, he recognized that what Tamar did could lead to righteousness, could lead to something good, that he could honor his promise to her by bringing her back into the family and honor his promise to God by continuing the line of Israel, restoring him to his responsibility. And I think in this moment, Judah remembered, maybe he remembered that moment when he sat at his father's knee, maybe the last time he sat with his father before going to Canaanite, and his father said, hey, remember God has given your grandfather and your grandfather, like a, a promise, a promise that something good's gonna come from us, so you've got to follow this because this isn't about you. It's so much bigger than you. Remember he remembered that moment, and he remembered how far he'd gone from it. And he chooses to remember the promise and the burden, and he chooses to let her live, accept her into the family, and Tamar has twin boys, and the promise continues. It's hard not to see that in his evil, in his things that he had done wrong, he lost two sons, and then God gave him back two sons, something he didn't deserve, and yet God is faithful. See, Jesus, he's called the Lion of Judah could have chose all those other names, all those other 11 boys. You could have chose Joseph, who right now is in Egypt making sure the world doesn't starve to death, but he chose Judah, this messed up person. And from Judah, kings came. God's promise is good. His providence is good. But remember, when we lose sight of the end of our stories, we get lost in the middle, and the result is pain. This is not a happily ever after story. People have died. Tamar has been abused and has not experienced anything but dysfunction. 
She had to fight and claw and risk her very life for what was her due, her right. And maybe you feel like Tamar. Maybe you have had to fight and plan and be crafty for your family, forced into incredible situations and difficult decisions because of other people and what they have chosen to do. You've had to make hard choices, some of which have been right and some of which have been wrong. Divorce and child custody tends to do that, put us in these bad situations, but maybe it's abuse of power. Tamar was abused by powerful people. Maybe you've been abused by power. Maybe you're suffering from systemic issues in our very society and government. Maybe this is who you are, and you're tired of fighting. Maybe you've experienced abuse, abuse and pain and suffering, both intentional and unintentional. Maybe you feel like broken goods, used up, abused. When you need to hear in this moment, because I know that what I'm talking about right now, for some of you, there are things you haven't thought about in years or don't ever want to think of. It's all coming up right now, and you're feeling a little bit vulnerable. You're feeling a little broken. You may be even feeling a little bit ashamed. But I want you to know something. What we learn again and again and again is that nothing is too broken to be used by God for his glory and to do good in this world. Nothing and no one. You are not too far gone, no matter if it was you or someone who did it to you, to be used by God. And that purpose can give all of our pain purpose and joy in the end. Tamar got back up, and so can you. When we look at Christmas, because it's about Christmas, believe it or not, when you look at Christmas and you see that Jesus was born to jacked up, messed up people, to broken and dysfunctional people, to like dirty in some ways, ways, and you see this picture of innocence, that the completely innocent and pure God of the universe got born into families that were messed up. We take comfort and joy and we can be in wonder of how good God is. Out of your pain, when you keep the end in mind, there can be a greater hope in the world than they can understand. A greater hope than the world can understand that people look at you and go, you shouldn't be full of hope, and you are because of what God has done. This is Christmas. This is wonder. When it makes no sense, somehow makes sense. When Jesus would come in this way, that doesn't make sense, and yet it does something that shouldn't be a paradox. This is the joy of Christmas, just the complete shock. So maybe you're like Tamar. Maybe you are like Hira, this other character in the story. Instead of guiding people away from their pain, you're guiding them towards a party. Instead of guiding them away from their pain by helping remind them of their promise, you're trying to distract them from what they're experiencing by providing things. See, pain will always be present. It's unavoidable until God comes back someday. It can't be bought off, planned for, or shielded from. But only, only purpose can be gained through pain if you understand the promise. Otherwise, you're just avoiding it. Maybe you need to stop being a hira and you need to remind people that this life is not the only thing. Maybe instead of taking people away from the pain, you need to take them to an encounter with Jesus where they can experience a promise. Maybe you need to bring them to church. Maybe that should be your first instinct, not to distract them, but to focus them. Now think of the person right now that you have the ability to love and influence towards truth and make a commitment to move them. Those who are hurting need guidance and love. Be someone who shows the generosity of God. And maybe you're surrounded by Hira's. 
Maybe you're surrounded by people who are all trying to take you in a different place. You need to get into a small, a life group, a small group, a place where you can be surrounded by people who know what the end is and we're all moving towards it. So I encourage you, Life Connect is coming up next month, a place where you can join a life group. Please sign up to be part of that, to surround your people. But here's the last one, the one that hurts the most. Maybe we are more like Judah. We made some mistakes Maybe got afraid for our children or our future and tried to protect them from pain instead of participating in this promise and pain has resulted for everyone. Maybe you've let your grief or hurt cause you to engage in some things you're not proud of. Maybe you let your desire get in the way of what truth and righteousness and patience actually looks like. Christmas is a time to remember that despite all of the things Judah did wrong and all of the things you have done wrong, the promise was fulfilled anyways. That God showed up. Judah is an ancestor of Jesus Christ. How improbable is that? How impossible is that? Now think about what's going on in your situation and realize that no matter how dire your situation or what you have done, you're invited to be parts of this legacy as well. That God can use you and your children and your children's children or your family or the people you choose around you to do incredible things. And repent, come back to God and see what he can do. So now what? What are we going to do? We've got to move forward towards wonder. We've got to participate in it. This whole series is about participating in the wonder of Jesus. And so I'm going to read off some of the things I already shared with you in the first week, remind you of this. But I want every single one of you to make a commitment to participate in the improbable journey towards wonder into wonder. And you can do that by reading all of Luke before Christmas. 10 days, there's still time. You can read it in one sitting to see what Jesus did the whole time and be in awe of him again. Read him for the first time. Or maybe you want to read the birth story of Jesus before a Christmas tradition, like putting up a tree if you haven't done that yet. Or, or maybe before you have Christmas dinner. Or maybe before the presents. I don't know what it is, but, but read the Christmas story together. Keep Jesus as the center. Maybe you need to participate in the joy of generosity. See, the truth is this, all of this Christmas is about sharing gifts because we got the greatest gift of all. And when you experience that, just give it. There is a joy that rises up in you. And you can give in so many different ways. You can give your time to people who really need it. Maybe that family member that no one wants to talk to. Or you can consider a year-end gift to Life Church so that joy can spread and that generosity can go. You can Embrace this and be part of it. And this is great. I hope that you do all of this, that you take all of the Christmas things and all the stuff, and instead of saying, oh, that's bad, use it as a way to focus you in onto who Jesus is and wonder and amazement will be yours. But I think, too, what we learn from the story so much is that if we forget what our end is, we're going to cause pain. And so I want you to keep the end in mind. The only way you can be reminded of this is to read God's word again and again, remind yourself of what your purpose is, but also to pray, to set every uh, day um, a time aside to pray, to get your vision right. See, 2020 is coming up, 2020 vision, right? You're going to see that everywhere, right? That get this focus on the future, focus on what God is doing. And the way we get our vision right is by reminding ourselves of the promise through prayer. And so what we're going to do in January as a church Every single one of us has participated in 21 days of prayer. 
But starting January 9th, we are going to get together and we are going to start praying every single day. And what we're going to be praying about is that God will remind us and show us what our purpose is. That there is a promise that's coming through this church and through our community that we need to be a part of. That there's a promise that was given to Judah and there's a promise given to us that God will make all things right. That the kingdom of God would come here. But if we forget the end, we will get focused on what's happening right now and we'll miss the point and we'll let fear overcome us. So on January 9th, we'll be starting with 21 days of prayer and we'll be able to help give you some resources for that. But on Thursday nights, for those three Thursday nights, starting on the 9th, we will get together as a church in this room and in this church building and we're gonna pray. It's gonna be exciting. I want you to start planning on being here for an hour, 6.30 p.m. Thursday nights, three times only as we prepare for what God is doing. And we'll end that month by talking to God and, 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 and praying with him, but also celebrating what he has done in our annual celebration. You'll hear more about that. What I wanna do right now is what I realize is when I preach stuff like this, even for myself, emotions come up, hurt comes up. See, because life is not rated G, it's rated R. And when we talk about these things, brokenness comes up inside of us. And I don't want you to leave here with that hurt. I want you to find healing. We're gonna do that in this next song where we realize that no matter where we're at, God will find us. He loves us right where we're at, right where we're feeling, and he's gonna meet us here. But we'll also do that by receiving prayer. And there are gonna be people up here afterwards who would love to pray with you at the very end of the service, pray with you and help you work through some stuff. Don't leave here feeling alone. Leave here knowing that there are people who wanna surround you with love. Have an encounter with Jesus. Stand with me. As we get ready to encounter Jesus, stand with me, not thinking about what's next, thinking about what's about to happen. This whole service has led up to this next thing, this next song, this next moment, where we remind ourselves that no matter what our situation, God meets us right there. Some of you, you need to follow Jesus for the very first time. You need to jump into the family, and you realize you either need to return to him or commit to follow him for the very first time. That Jesus who was born on Christmas day, it wasn't just that God showed up, but that God showed up, he grew up, and then he took your pain and your suffering on himself, and he died for you as a sacrifice. He paid your price, but you have to choose. You have to choose it. You have to choose to follow him, to accept that gift and to follow him. If you wanna do that, I'd like you to pray with me. Close your eyes. Bow your heads if you're, if you're willing. And during this time, I'm going to help you talk to God. If you want to make this decision to follow him and you need a savior, you need someone to rescue you, whether you feel like Judah or Tamar or Hira, I want you to repeat after me. God's here. He's in the room. He wants to speak to you. He wants to restore relationship with you. So repeat after me out loud or in your heart. Make these words your own. I'm just going to help you talk to him because he's here. Repeat after me. God, I am broken. Some things have been done to me and I've done some things. And I want to be right with you, God. I want to know you. I want to know the God who made me. There's something in the way, and that's my brokenness, and it's the brokenness of this world. But you sent a way to bridge that gap. You sent someone to take my pain, my suffering on himself. And that person is Jesus. 
God, fully God and fully man. And he paid for me. He paid for my sins and my brokenness. So I return or I'm turning to you for the first time. And I say, I will follow you if you make me clean and you make me new. If you give me hope in a future, I will follow you. I'm in awe of who you are. I will follow you and make your name great. To everyone that I know, I will name the name of Jesus Christ. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to find out more information about Life Church Canton or other churches in the Life Church Network, text I'm New to 734 349 3475 or fill out the form linked in the show notes below and someone from the church will reach out to you with more information. If you came to Life Church for the first time this past weekend, we would love to know about it. We believe that life isn't meant to be lived in isolation, but we want to connect with you and learn to live like Jesus in community together. If you want to email the show, you can do that at podcast at lifechurchcanton.org. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're enjoying it, please share it with a friend and leave us a review. Once again, my name is Sam Parham, and you've been listening to the Life Church Canton podcast. Have a great week, everybody.